welcome to the first National Technology News podcast. I'm Will McCurdy, content editor of National Technology News. Though the tech sector has continued to be earmarked as a key part of Britain's economic growth by successive governments and as an integral part of Britain's economic recovery post COVID 19, participation in the tech sector is not being distributed evenly. Despite the fact that close to 50% of Britain's workforce are women, they only occupy 19% of technology roles. And what's more, despite the fact that 33% of Britain's workers are from a working class background, only 19% of workers in the technology sector are. To delve further into these topics and their root causes, as well as some possible solutions to this dilemma, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Debbie Forster, MBE and CEO of the Tech Talent Charter, Thanks for joining us, Debbie. Thanks so much, Will. So could you just give our listeners a top-level overview of uh, what the Tech Talent Charter does? Thanks, I'd love to. The Tech Talent Charter, and it rolls off the tongue hereafter if you call it the TTC. It's less of a tongue twister. Um, The TTC is a a not-for-profit organization. We're leading a movement that's addressing inequality in the tech sector here in the UK and really driving inclusion and diversity in this practical uniquely measurable way. Ultimately, we want the UK tech sector to be truly inclusive, reflection of the society it represents. So we work at scale, you know, we look at the tech ecosystem as a whole. And I think key to what we do is that we bring together organizations who have stopped seeing this as a trade secret, but who are sharing what works and what doesn't work, collaborating, to change the sector as a whole. We convene, we connect, we amplify, we don't reinvent the wheel. And we're now over 550 organizations working together. So this is diversity and inclusion in its fullest sense. So this isn't just looking at gender, although that is the starting point. We are looking at ethnicity, social inclusion, disability, all those protected uh, lenses, and it is any organization who needs tech. So yes, it is Microsoft and Cisco and Salesforce, but this is also Unilever, Lloyds Bank. This is Cancer Research UK and Domino's Pizza. It's SMEs and startups, organizations who get why this matters and are working together to make it work better within the sector. Yeah, so it's a lot more wide-ranging than people might initially think when they hear the word tech. Mm, absolutely. It's, and I think if there's anything we have learned under COVID, it is that any organization, if it is going to survive and thrive now and going forward, it has to understand its digital element and it has to get the very best tech talent into the organization. And that tech talent, if those teams are going to be truly innovative, if they're really going to impact the bottom line, they have to reflect the client, the user group, that wider audience. So we need to absolutely ensure that tech for everyone is designed and built by everyone. Yeah, it's, it's necessary for survival at this point. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I think the exciting thing that has changed over the last six, seven years is companies have woke up that this is not just the the right thing to do, which of course it is. It is actually deeply, 
deeply smart business thing to do. It actually impacts the bottom line. So this is a strategically smart thing to do, which means the best companies, the most forward-looking companies are boiling this into the core DNA of who they are as an organization. Yeah, I mean, having a completely homogenous organization is very much a business risk. Oh, huge. And, and it is not getting it right is a huge risk and cost. And getting it right has huge benefit. You know, there's been great studies coming out from a range of uh, research that shows that having an inclusive, diverse team means you have a better bottom line, you have a greater chance of innovation, you have greater chance to break into new markets. So it is a win-win situation to get it right, and it is a huge risk not to. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your background and sort of the circumstances that led you to the current position. Absolutely. So I think it's important to realize that if you remember when I said at the start, this was part of a movement and, and a movement is more than one person. So back in about 2016, someone called Sinead Bunting was inspired to write the charter itself. And she gathered some of us around her. And a number of us were people who were already working in the space. So that could be um, Dr. Anne-Marie Infidon, that could be Amali de Alwis, it was myself, people who were aware and working broadly around DNI in relation to tech. And I have to say, when, when Sinead first brought us together, my first comment was, if I have to go to another roundtable event on why there's no women in tech, my head's going to explode. You know, I'm, I'm sick of talking about the problem. And another thing that, that really motivated us was we were tired of seeing companies, organizations, initiatives reinvent the wheel again and again and again, not moving forward. So the, the focus for us to come together was to, to really look at how do we get companies and organizations that are doing things in this space to collaborate. So it was initially around 17 companies and it's not just tech companies so yes HP was there but so was global and with those 17 companies we hammered out what was the proposition what was it we were asking of, of companies what were we doing and you know we we decided things like it was free to join that initially we would start with gender, but a pledge that we would go wider, which we have been doing since 2019, that at the core of what we do, if there was one thing we were going to require of our members was sharing data. And you know that is key. Each year, I said there were over 550 members. Every year since we first started back in 2017, I have removed between 10 and 15% of our members, kick them out because they haven't shared data. If you share the data, you can access and work with us for free. If you do not share that data, you're removed because what's measured gets done. And each year that we go forward, we know the companies who are making the progress start with data, use the data to create really targeted interventions to move the dial on this. No, the, the idea of uh, doing it in a data-based and quantitative way is, is really interesting. And I think the other thing that, that is different for us in this space is going back to the thing I said of, of you know, connecting the dots. 
our companies pledge to collaborate and to share what works and what doesn't work. Now, what this means is we have free practical events where people can come along to hear how do you change your recruitment? What can you do about retraining? You know, how do I change my, my culture? What can I do to become a better, uh, better inclusion for black employees? And we've used that to create um, two parts of our toolkit. So one part of our toolkit, which is free to use, is an open playbook of best practice. So this is where you can go for free to look at what have companies done to improve their recruitment? What have companies done to remove barriers and be more inclusive for those with disabilities? How have companies set up retraining programs? We've begun mapping who does what in the space. So we have an open directory. So if you need to find someone to help you to work in these things. And finally, we take that data and as well as um, releasing a report as we did last week, which has some great headlines, it's part of the toolkit because there are benchmarking tools. You know, when we take that data, we don't name and shame. What we do, and it's not about league tables, is we share the insights and the tools that mean companies can sit down and now they can look at their gender, they can look at their ethnicity data, and they can compare themselves. How do I compare to everyone in the tech talent charter? You know, my members are ahead. You know, when you say that it's 19% across the UK, for our members, it's 25% in tech roles. But you can be more nuanced than that. You can compare yourself against other SMEs. You can compare yourself with other people in your sector, whether that's financial services, tech services, professional services, government or third sector. We've also, because we're starting to get the right size, you're also able to compare how you're doing to other people in your region. So it's about measuring where you are. It's about learning where people are headed, getting ahead of the game. And then it's using our open playbook to start, you, you know, there's no magic bullet, but nor do you ever have to start from scratch. You can take ideas that other companies are using and put them to work in your own, whatever your company size or sector. So moving on, the disproportionate effect of the pandemic on women and certain other minorities uh, has been established. But do you think the pandemic could have any positive effects and diversity in the long term, just from the disruption it's caused? Yes, for two reasons. Um, one, remember that within tech, we're one of the only sectors that coming through COVID continued to grow, continued to advertise for new roles. And in doing that, that necessity of tech means it is keen and motivated to get more people into tech. And it was interesting when we did a survey, both at the height of, of the first lockdown and then in our September data gathering, we knew that 60% of our companies have kept their focus, the priority of inclusion diversity at the same level. And actually 25% of our companies plan to make it more of a priority. The second thing that I think is groundbreaking, and, and not just for women, but it will have that impact on women. We know within tech, there was still that abiding myth that we can't possibly do this remotely. We couldn't possibly have flexible working. Part-time work would never work. How could I possibly have my stand-up each morning if people aren't in the room with me and I can see their cup of coffee? Well, what we had under COVID wasn't flexible working, but those myths were exploded. And what I'm hearing from our members is they're not going to go back 
to that old normal, that they are embracing that flexible working, remote working, part-time working is viable within a business environment. There are actually some business advantages and, and it is a great way of attracting more people into the set. We know from time-wise that flexible working is very attractive to women, not just for moms, for carers, but we also know it is attractive to men. It is attractive for those with mental health issues, with disabilities. We know a lot of our millennials want a side gig. So there is that within COVID, that idea that we can do this remotely, that will open the door for a lot of women. And then the other thing is that increased focus on DNI means that a lot of my companies, in fact, one and a half times as many companies as last year, are investing in career returner programs, retraining programs, career conversion programs. So a lot of these women who have been displaced, thrown off the ladder in other sectors, could be thinking about retraining to get into tech, where there are companies who want them there, who would value the difference they bring. And, you know, and tech has proven itself to be a resilient sector. So it offers a, a stronger job future for a lot of women. Yeah, exactly. Do you think there are any ways for average employees at companies who don't necessarily pull senior management responsibilities to have a positive impact on diversity. Absolutely. So, so if you are an individual and not a management person in a company that hasn't got it yet, you can arm yourself. There are powerful business cases that we can share with you. There are targeted, simple interventions that you can begin. That means you could go to a line manager, that you could go to a senior manager, that you could begin gathering allies and champions to change things in your company. If you're in a company that is already on that journey, you can be, you know, getting on the journey for inclusion and diversity is not just top down. It is about creating a real sense of safe spaces, psychological safety for all and bringing everyone on the journey. And this year, our theme is tough conversations and positive action together. It is those conversations. It is hearing those people who don't understand the why or the how of inclusion, who don't understand what we mean by belonging or diversity or equity. And if you learn to have those conversations, you know, we, we did a survey and it was in our report looking at middle managers and it was super insofar as around 80% do want, believe in DNI, but there's a lot of uncertainty on how to do it. There's a lot of unease about how to start those conversations. So as individuals, we can begin starting to have those conversations, helping people get comfortable with being uncomfortable, creating spaces where people can ask those questions. How do I talk about ethnicity? What can I do around disability? What, you know, how can I become, how can I be an ally for LGBTQ plus? So I'd say not only there is something you might be able to do, for things to really move forward, we all have a role that we can play. Yeah, exactly. It's very much a team effort on, on every level. Agreed. Absolutely. Culture is everyone. It's, it's not just what the CEO says it is. Winding back a little bit, what do you feel are the most underappreciated or misunderstood causes of the lack of diversity in the current UK tech scene? There's some, been some interesting research that we saw 
Um, first of all, we knew this was becoming an issue with women. I saw a recent piece of research that said it was an, an, an issue when we think about things like social inclusion. And it is to some degree how opaque we are um, of what the tech industry is. We hear from women that if they had more information about what being in tech meant, what were the skills needed, how do they get in? We, we've seen in research that people from different socioeconomic background that are, that are coming from that less privileged position, they don't know anyone in tech. And so they're not going to have that social capital, that knowledge experience context on what it means to get into that. And I think there is a whole knowledge piece in which we demystify tech where companies get better at talking about the why and the how of tech rather than just getting terribly excited and using a lot of our jargon and creating those conversations and actively, instead of staying in our little tech silos and waiting for people to come to us, go out where people are talking and be in part of those sorts of organizations. So we're seeing where information campaigns, whether it's something like Tech She Can and, and the work that they're doing in schools, whether it's instituted coding and really rethinking about what happens in universities and how they reach out to students to help people see there's someone like them in tech. That is how we break down those barriers. And that has been a big barrier. We have been too secretive, you know, too, too excited about ourselves in tech and coming up with our coded language. And we've not opened the pathways and helped people see that this isn't just about what coding language you know. It's about core skills like we're looking for problem solvers. We're looking for people who can work well in teams. We're looking for people who have a good eye for detail. And to talk about the sheer wealth and breadth of tech roles. Whenever we find that we, we are opening those up, we're finding that more and more people from underrepresented groups can see themselves getting into tech and these retraining programs are beginning to open those doors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the degree to which people don't realize you don't necessarily need a computer science degree to work in technology and there's a huge demand for a wide variety of skill sets. Absolutely. And, and in fact, companies are also waking up to the, the really rich opportunity of retraining people who are already in their company, who, you know, have big, deep knowledge of what is going on in the organization of who their users are, who their customers are, what their, what their products are, and then giving them those tech skills to make them even better. So this is, I think, the big thing to remember, to train to get into tech whatever you're learning right now will be very different in five years time. We will have different roles, different languages, different technologies. We need people who are interested in learning and going on that journey, who are great problem solvers and, and are willing to go and be on that lifetime learning and training. If you're in it, then, then you're ready for tech and tech really needs you. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. So, Moving on, what legislation or strategies do you think the UK government could implement to improve participation in the technology industry? I'd like to call on government, and we heard this in our festival last week from companies, bring back things like gender pay reporting, look at the ethnicity pay reporting, and also continue to expand on how can we incentivize retraining 
career conversion, returners. The jobs are there in tech. We need to find ways of training more and more people, giving people access to those things. But for us to really realize, you know, it was a huge leap forward in gender, not that it was perfect gender pay reporting, but that pulling off the plaster of let's look at some data and let's start asking questions was really important. And while we understand that the pressures of what was going on during the worst of lockdown meant that companies didn't have the bandwidth to do that, getting companies to grapple with the data, getting companies to really look at where they are, to share that, creating transparency in the system is a powerful way of driving inclusion and diversity for all. And just to conclude things, so there's been a lot of the talk in media over the past few years about the imposter syndrome. What personal strategies would you recommend for people from non-traditional backgrounds uh, to fight their own imposter syndromes? And you're talking to a professional imposter syndrome fighter. I think the first thing to remember is to learn to recognize the voice of your imposter syndrome. Um, the first step of conquering that problem is to start recognizing the problem and to realize that those messages that you are being fed aren't true and that we need to either through working with friends or coaching or mentoring or reading start understanding what are our core strengths and lean into that fear you know if i wait until i am not if i waited until i was confident if i waited until i truly believed i could do something i would never get out of the room it is understanding that it is about walking through those fears and insecurities to accept that Actually, what you're feeling inside your head is the same battle so many people are fighting inside their own heads. And to find those people who become your allies, that, you know, on the best of days, I fight my own battle and I can walk through whatever my imposter syndrome is telling me. On those bad days, I need those few people who have got my back who can remind me of the good messages about myself. So it is, it's just an ongoing practice of each day when the, when the messages come up that tell you why you can't do something is to just accept that of course you're gonna make mistakes. You know, mistakes are part of the game. We unfortunately in education think of failure as a one-off thing that happens in an exam hall and that is what breaks us. Where in fact life and you know tech more than any other sector tells us mistakes are a waypoint that's you know if we're not making mistakes we're not innovating we're not moving forward so take a deep breath walk through it and that voice does get quieter over time yeah uh exactly debbie people have no idea how endemic it is and how many people feel the exact same things and it, and it is a thing i have to say i used to talk about it in a way of oh this is what women feel and and i think we've got to realize this is not uh this is not something that we have the corner on suffering i hear the more people are getting comfortable and there is that relief i see and hear in people's voices when we have that conversation when one person plucks up the courage to say this is how I doubt myself. This is how I'm fearful. And then there's that, that sigh of relief from everyone. Oh my God, I thought it was only me. I didn't realize that. And it's almost that understanding of, for many of us, that's just the common starting point. It isn't the bearer, it is the starting point that makes it somehow 
it's never easy, but it is easier. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thanks for joining us today, Debbie. Thanks My pleasure, Will.